now. We're in the fourth week of our series we're calling Level Up. And in this series, we're learning how God takes us through the process of transforming our character into his character. And in our series, we're basing it on two verses that are found in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so far in this series, we've covered love and joy and peace. Last week, we looked at patience. But this week, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take two of the fruit, and we're going to combine them, and we're going to talk about kindness and goodness together. And the reason we're going to do this is you're going to see they are so closely linked. In fact, maybe as you're sitting here listening, you're thinking, wow, goodness and kindness, they already sound like the same thing, right? So let me give you a couple of definitions. When we talk about goodness as it relates to the fruit of the Spirit, what we're really talking about, here's the definition, is excellence in character. It's excellence in character. In other words, goodness has to do with who we are inwardly and what God is doing in our life through His Holy Spirit inwardly. But when we talk about kindness, We're talking about what we do outwardly. So goodness is who we are inwardly. Kindness is how that is lived out. It's what we do outwardly. And let me give you a good definition for kindness is compassion in action. It's whenever you see a need, you just naturally address that need. Not that you're doing it, but the Holy Spirit is working through you. And it's interesting, we see both of these attributes in the character of God. The psalmist talks about this, Psalm 119, verse 68. He's referring to God and he says, you are good. In other words, you are excellent in character. As we've sung this weekend, you're good. You're a good God. You're excellent. You're perfect in all of your ways. But not only that, what you do is good. In other words, your kindness or who you are on the inside results in compassion and action. So you really can't separate the two. Authentic goodness will always lead to kindness, compassion, and action. Now, why is this important? Well, thousands of years ago, Paul wrote a little letter to a church in Ephesus. We now have it in our Bible as the book of Ephesians. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, follow God's example, therefore is dearly loved children. Maybe your translation says, be imitators of God. I actually like that better. What are the characteristics of God's goodness and kindness that the Holy Spirit wants to begin to produce in our lives? In other words, what does it look like in our lives as we live out goodness and kindness? How can we measure how we're doing as we're growing through the fruit of the, uh, through the Holy Spirit in our lives? So I wanna give you four characteristics of God's goodness and kindness this weekend. And I'm gonna talk about how he wants us to live these out in our relationships with one another. The first one is understanding. God is understanding. And God wants us to model this understanding in our relationships with one another. This is what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 4, 15. We do not have a high priest, and that's a reference to Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted, or you could say tested in every way, just as we are. Now here's the big difference, yet he did not sin. In other words, Jesus has experienced everything that we've experienced But he didn't give in to the sin. He didn't give in to the temptation. But what is it that this verse is telling us? It's telling us this. It's telling us that Jesus understands us. That in our relationship with Jesus, he gets us. I love what the psalmist said, Psalm 103, verse 14. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers we're dust. In other words, when God looks down at us, stumbling over ourselves, sinning when we don't want to, choosing to sin, making a mess, making a chaos out of our lives, I think there are times God looks at us, shakes his head and says, wow, dust bunnies, (laughs) dust bunnies. Yeah, that's how I made them, you know. My point is this, 
Jesus isn't shocked when we screw up. Jesus isn't shocked by our behavior, you know, when we do bad stuff. Jesus never looks at me and says, wow, Mike, I didn't know you were capable of that. He knows what I'm capable of. You know why? Because he looks at me and he says, dust. So Hebrews 4.15 says, he understands our weaknesses. In other words, he understands what we're going through. And not only does he understand, it gives him an ability to identify with us. Max Licato has written a great little book. It's called God Came Near. And in it, he talks about Jesus' humanity. And I'll just warn you a little ahead of time, it's gonna make you a little uncomfortable. But he writes this, Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for sure, he was while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. His head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light is almost irreverent. It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There's something about keeping, divine, keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable. Lakeda writes, don't do that. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. He identifies with us. A few years ago, I decided to go on my first missionary trip. And I decided to take Carl with me. And we decided to go to the Central African Republic, which at that time uh, was the poorest country on the earth. And uh, I think about uh, $240 a year was the average household income in the Central African Republic. And we weren't even in the cities. We spent time uh, out, out, in, out in the rainforest with the pygmies. In fact, I have a picture there. Those are some of the pygmies. Carl and I used to call it partying with the pygmies. We used to dance and have a good old time. But let me show you, this, this is the accommodation when you're out there with the pygmies. That's, that's where they live and that's, that's where you hang out. So this is not like going on a mission trip to Uganda, okay? This isn't like going, this is not like going to Haiti. The problem is we didn't know what to do. Here's the good news. Jim was actually born in the Central African Republic, the man we went with. He was raised there. So he was able to tell us everything we needed to prepare us for the trip. For example, he told us what to bring. And by the way, when you go on a trip like this, half of our suitcase, maybe more, was filled with food. Jim said, hey, there are no Kroger's here, no Harris Teeters. You got to bring your own food. So we packed blocks of cheese and instant oatmeal and instant coffee and those kinds of things that we could make while we were out in the jungle with Jim. He didn't have the resources to go and get the food. But then he also told us how to behave. He said, for example, this is a military-run country. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a result of a coup. They hadn't had an election there in over 75 years. Whenever a leader gets enough of a military army, he just comes in and runs the previous guy out. And so the soldiers are running the place. He said, don't take any pictures. Because if you take pictures and a soldier sees you, he'll take your camera. He may take you, so don't take pictures. And then he said this. He says, as we travel throughout the country, these soldiers don't get paid by the government. So the only way they can survive is by setting up roadblocks. And he says, they're gonna try to shake us down. 
Don't worry, just get out, smile. He said, they're probably gonna point guns at your head, but don't worry, Jim said, I don't think they can afford bullets. <laughs> this was my thought. I don't want my tombstone to read, they could afford one. That, 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 that's right. But he prepared us and he gave us all this information and he was able to do it because see, he had already been there. He had experienced it for years. In the very same way, as we're on this expedition that we call life, we have the ability every day to have a conversation with someone who's already been there, it's Jesus. He experienced everything the world had to throw at him. So he understands what we're going through. And now his desire is that we become imitators of what we've seen in him, which means he wants us to become more understanding of each other. So here's a question. What would that look like in our relationships? Well, let me ask you. When somebody around you blows it, I mean, they screw up big time. How do you respond to them? Do you say, I can't believe you. Or do you get, you know, do you get full of pride and say, I would never, you ever done that? Or is your response, wow, wow, you really screwed up. But I get it. I understand. You know what? It could have just as easily been me. I'm telling you, that attitude will determine the depth of your goodness and kindness. And this is why it's so important. If I am going to follow God's example, I've got to understand you and I've got to accept you even when you struggle. I've got to under, understand you and I've got to accept you even when you blow it because see, that's how God understands and accepts me. Doesn't mean I approve of your behavior. Doesn't mean that I condone your behavior. It means I get it. I get it. And I accept you as you're going through that tough time. Now understand, when we begin to live that way in our relationships, we're following God's example. So the first characteristic we see of God's goodness and kindness is understanding. Second, honesty. God is honest with us. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it's a book of honesty. I mean, when the Bible paints a portrait of one of its heroes, it paints it warts and all. I mean, think about it. One minute we're reading that David was a man after God's own heart. The next minute we're reading that David killed Uriah, took his wife Bathsheba to be his own wife. That's keeping it real. That's pretty honest. How about Jonah? We love the story of Jonah and the big fish, don't we? God told Jonah, Jonah was a prophet. I want you to go to Nineveh, tell him to follow me and to repent. Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. He was a bigot. He's like, I don't want them to repent. I want you to judge them. I want you to destroy them. So he decided not to go. Remember, got on the boat to Tarshish, got thrown overboard, swallowed by a big fish, made that first amphibious landing, you know, in, into Nineveh. Went and preached to the people, turned to God and repent. And historians believe that over 750,000 people turned to God and were saved as a result of it. Well, naturally, Jonah responded by, by celebrating and worshiping God, right? No, he was angry at God for saving the people. And it says that he went and sat under a vine and he said, I just wish I were dead. He had a big pity party. He was a bigot. I'm telling you, the Bible keeps it real. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. In our relationship with God, I know a lot of people don't like Christianity because they think it's so hard and they think it's so narrow. But let me ask you a question. In our relationship with God, what if God only gave us half the picture? What if God's approach would have been, you know what? 
I don't want to offend anybody. I'm just going to keep it positive. I'm just going to be politically correct. So what if all God said to us in this Bible was, I created you in my image, I love you, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. Incredibly positive message. And it's all true, but it's only half the truth. So it would be great that God took the approach, a positive approach with us. It would be great until we died and we stood before God. And then it would be a little late to find out that although we were created in the image of God, and although God is head over heels in love with us, that we sin. Uh-oh. And our sin separates us from God. At that point, it's a little late to discover that there was this guy named Jesus that came to this earth and died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. It's a little late to find out that if I would have just trusted in God's free gift of salvation made possible through Jesus, that he could have bridged the gap between me and God and I could have been reconciled back into a relationship with God. And I could have experienced the life I always wanted to experience. I could have been forgiven of all my sins. And not only that, when I died, I would have got to go to a place called heaven to spend all eternity with God. I mean, think about it. What if God hadn't been honest? What if he hadn't made us aware in the Bible of our need for salvation? I mean, what if God's attitude was, well, I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to make you feel bad. Sinner's such, that's such a harsh word, right? Right. I think we were saying, well, I probably would appreciate you telling me, you know, right? You see, if God didn't give us that vital information while we're here on earth, we would be in serious trouble in eternity. So God tells us the truth. He's too good and he's too kind not to be honest with us. In the very same way, if you choose to be honest in your relationships, sometimes you're gonna to have to tell that individual the truth. Sometimes you're gonna to have to have the hard conversation and be honest. Because if you don't, it can have ramifications. Let me give you an example. How many of you here are millennials? That means you're born between 1980 and 2000. Raise your hands. Okay, a lot of millennials here, okay? In fact, where are those cheerleaders from NC State? Yeah, look right down here. NC State cheerleaders. Hey, let me ask you a question. You guys think Carolina cheerleaders go to church? No, we know they don't. Good answer. See, <laughs> they didn't say that, but I could tell inside that's what they were thinking. But anyway, but the millennials, let me... Now we all have labels, Gen Xers, boomers, but millennials, it's interesting. Everything you read about millennials, there are four words that always come up to describe them. Entitled, arrogant, narcissistic, and know-it-alls. Let me see the hands of those again who are millennials. Put those hands up one more time. Okay, entitled, arrogant, narcissistic, and know-it-alls. Now, understand, it's not your fault. It's your parents' fault. No, that's true, it's true. Do you know why? Because you were raised by parents who had the attitude, oh, nobody should lose. Everybody wins. Everybody has to get a trophy, right? <laughs> nobody fails, everybody passes. You don't get an A or an F, you get a check, right? Cause you're good, you're so awesome. You're so special. You can do anything you want to do. You can be anything you want to be. Hogwash. I want to be Kobe Bryant. I'm not, you know, right? It's not your fault. It's your parents, right? Now, I didn't get that memo. And I didn't know I was supposed to treat you that way. 
So when I was a coach a few years ago, I had a kid who was horrible. I'm not sure how he got on the team. I inherited him. And his dad came up to me and said, what can I do? What can I do with him that will impact the team in a positive way? I said, buy him a trumpet and get him in the band. That's what you can do. If you want to help me as a coach, right? right. See, I didn't get the memo, right? Just because you're a parent, a good parent, doesn't mean you're blind, right? Just because you're a good parent doesn't mean you sweep everything under the road. See, you've been telling your kid their whole life, they can do anything they want to do. They are so incredible. They're so awesome. But you see, at some point, you got to tell little Einstein, Harvard's probably not in the picture. We need to look for a trade school. You know what I'm saying? Right? Right? Now, this is what Ephesians 4.15 says. Speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. We're to speak the truth seasoned with love. And Paul says when we do that, we actually become more like Jesus. We are following his example. Now I'm going to warn you ahead of time. If you decide to do that in your relationships, speak the truth in love. You're going to have some good days, but I'll just warn you ahead of time. You're going to have some tough days. Here's the question you will have to ask yourself. Do you care enough to confront the people in your life who matter the most to you? Do you love them enough to pull them aside and tell them, if you continue down this path, you're going to ruin your life? Do you love them enough to say, do you have any idea what you're doing to your marriage right now? Do you have any idea what you're doing to that relationship? Do you have any idea what you're doing to your children? Do you have any idea what you're doing to your reputation right now? I'm telling you, if you're honest in your relationships the way God is honest with us, you're not going to pretend that everything is great when it's not. You're going to be truthful. You're going to level with them. So honesty is a characteristic of God when it comes to his goodness and kindness. Third characteristic, forgiveness. Interesting verse in the Bible that we often use if we're sharing the gospel with someone. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That what it means is this. In our, in our best efforts, on our best day, we are never going to measure up to God's expectations of us. And so we hear that verse, and it leads to a problem that a lot of us struggle with. The problem is this. When we think about God, the fact that we never meet his expectation, we think, well, he must be out to get us. Because, see, when we think about our relationship with God, we compare it to our relationships with one another. And when we're in a relationship and we're not meeting that person's expectations, it's usually not going to be good in the relationship. So we just assume, wow, if we're not meeting God's expectation, it's just a matter of time before he's, you know, he's going to bash us upside the head or trip us up and say, see, I knew you couldn't do it. I knew you were going to let me down. That's just not the way God is. I mean, sure, the Bible says that we've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We, we don't meet his expectation. But God didn't say too bad, you know, so sad. See you later. You're on your own. You got to read the next verse. Verse 20 says, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Think about that verse. What he's saying is this, God in his gracious kindness, regardless of the fact we will never meet his expectations, we always fall short of the standard he set for us. God in his gracious kindness redeemed us and he redeemed us by forgiving our sins so we could be restored and reconciled back into a relationship with God 
Now let me just put that into perspective. Let me put it into context. Understand that before God even created you, before you even took your first breath, God already knew every sin that you were ever going to commit. Guys, he knew you were gonna get your dad's playboy and take it to the clubhouse and show all the neighborhood friends. He knew you were gonna steal that pack of gum in the store. Girls, he knew you were gonna have sleepovers and gossip all night and whatever you guys do at sleepovers, I don't really know. Never been to one, right? He knew that even after you became a Christian, you were gonna fall asleep every time you tried to pray. He knew how many times you were gonna blow off church. He knew how many times you were gonna come to a pivotal moment in your life where you had to make a decision and you knew the right thing to do and you deliberately chose to do the wrong thing. He knew all of that. Yet he still created you and he still decided to love you. And he said, regardless of what I know they're gonna do, I'm gonna forgive them anyway. So if we're gonna follow God's lead and you know where I'm going with this, who in your life do you need to forgive? Right now, who is that person? Right now. Let me present it another way. In your mind this weekend is like a long gallery of pictures and they're just right there, they're vivid, they're in living color. Those pictures make up your memory. Those pictures make up your life. Some of them date maybe back to 1960, 1980, 2000, 2010, 2015. Some of those pictures are obscene. Some of them are violent, some of them are hurtful. They have no business being in the art gallery of your memory. And this is what God is saying to you this weekend. You gotta go back to that gallery you got to walk down that hallway. You've got to take down those pictures and you've got to look at them for the last time. And then you've got to destroy them. And you destroy them by forgiving and releasing the person that's living in that frame. Let me give you a couple of verses. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow his example. How about Colossians 3.13? Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Here it is again. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I'm telling you, until you do that, those pictures will haunt you. Until you do that, those pictures, they will absolutely drain your energy. They will take away your joy. And I know what you're thinking right now. Mike, it's easy for you to say that, but you have no idea what they did to me. Well, let me go back to that last phrase, forgive as the Lord forgave you. But Mike, if I forgive them, I'm just, I'm assuming, I'm acting like it didn't even happen. I'm letting them get away with it. Well, let me go back to that verse, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I'm telling you, this is the basics. This is Bible truth 101. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will never be free until you make the decision to forgive as you have been forgiven. You gotta follow God's example. One more characteristic, affirmation. God is understanding, he's honest, he's forgiving, but he affirms us. Great verse, Romans 15, verse seven, it says this. Accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. See, a lot of us, we've accepted Jesus as our savior. Did you realize that Jesus had accepted you? But even after we become Christians, instead of living in God's acceptance, we spend our lives trying to find significance. Even as Christians, we spend our lives searching for affirmation. 
That's why we pursue things like power, pleasure, prestige. That's why it's so important to us that we're successful, that we climb the corporate ladder. Or maybe we wanna find affirmation in a relationship and we finally meet someone and we think, wow, here's a person who can meet all my needs. So we start dating, we get married, but after a while, things don't work out the way you expected them to work out. Something's not there, there's a void. Something's still missing. So you think, I'll just get rid of this person, I'll just end this relationship, and I'll just go find the person who can meet my expectations. I'm gonna level with you. If you're trying to find significance, if you're trying to find affirmation in a relationship, you are always going to be disappointed because you're putting pressure, you're putting responsibility on the shoulders of someone who was never intended to bear that responsibility. Only God can meet those responsibilities. That's where you find your affirmation. I'll tell you something, a lot of, you, you probably wouldn't know about me and my son's here and he would, he would verify this. I am incredibly insecure. I have an incredible low self-esteem. And I, you know, I we probably all kind of reasons. Maybe my mom put my diapers on too tight. I don't know why, but I'm sure, you know, I don't know why. And Laura's all the time saying, honey, why do you feel that way? Why do you do that? Why don't you do this? You know, it's really easy to talk about, but hey, you know, it is what it is. But th this is a couple of things that helped me. I try to remember, first of all, God thinks about me every second of every day. Every, I mean, from the time God created me, he's never been able to get me off of his mind. That's true of you also. Here's the second one. I'm so important to God that I cost him his very own son. I'm so important to God, I cost him his very own son. And I try to make a habit of doing this. Every time I see a cross, if it's one that Laura's wearing around her neck, maybe it's on the cover of a Bible, maybe it's passing by a church. I remember, wow, that's a symbol of just how much I mean to God. Romans 5, 8 says this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, while we had nothing to offer him, and maybe we weren't even interested in him while we were yet sinners, God loved us so much that his son died for us. That's the model. God said, I affirmed you. Now you, in turn, affirm one another. Who in your life needs some affirmation? Hmm? You gotta choose, are you gonna follow God's example or not? Now we began by looking at these character traits in the life of God, Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and what you do is good. This is what I want you to understand. In the same way, when we become Christians and the Holy Spirit at that moment of salvation takes up residence in our life, the Holy Spirit goes to work in our lives and he begins to make us inwardly good. And as he takes us through that process, that transformation, as we become inwardly good without even realizing it, we automatically just begin to show kindness. Compassion naturally begins to flow out of our lives to the people around us. But you gotta understand, it starts on the inside. See, that's why every once in a while you can give some money to a tornado victim and it's no big deal. Or you can give a backpack of school supplies to an inner city kid that, you, that, that, that you're not ever gonna have in your home. Right? You can do stuff like that, that's kindness. But for it become a lifestyle, it begins by being changed on the inside. And then it flows naturally. I'll give you an example. It's kind of silly, but let me give it to you. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you guys have a pig at home? I'm speaking at the wrong campus. I bet if I was Holly Springs, the hands would be going up. That's close to Fuquay. In fact, there might be some pigs in that campus right now. Just, just saying. But anyway, 
Let me tell you what I know about pigs. You know, everybody's trying to be one with their animals these days. Go see the mole. I saw, I saw a lady at the mall with a purse, dog's head sticking out of it. I'm like, oh, but uh, you know, I, but I shouldn't have said that. I know some of you love dogs. But Laura and I went to a restaurant and I looked, there was a stroller beside me. I was gonna think it was a cute little baby. There's two little ugly dogs just sitting there staring at me. I'm like, what is wrong with people? But there's ugly, dirty animals out of my restaurant where I'm, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, that's a, let's say you wanna do that with your pig, all right? You can bring that pig in the house. You can put him in the shower. You can bathe him, shampoo him, condition, exfoliate his snout. Put some perfume on it, paint that pig's toenails, put a bow right between its ears. But if you let that pig go back outside, he's gonna go right back at the mud, right? Do you know why? Because at the heart of a pig is a pig. That's profound. <laughs> I was a PE major, people. That's as deep as it gets, okay? <laughs> now, let me tell you something. We're no different. In our series, we've been focusing on the fruit of the Spirit. We've been looking at Galatians 5, and 23. But if you back up to verse 19, Paul tells us what our lives looked like before God got involved and we became inwardly good. This is what he says, the act of the flesh. Okay, this is our sinful nature. This is, this is us without God. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I'm not sure what that is, but and the like, right? But Paul says, hey, listen, if you want to know what our sinful nature looks like, Paul says, that's it. Right there. You can read about it. And, it, and it's not a pretty picture. But understand, this is what it looks like when we walk according to the flesh. Before God went to work in our lives and made us inwardly good. By the way, let me say, because we've been talking about how living out goodness and kindness, the characteristics of God, how it can change our positive, our relationships in a positive way. Let me just say this. Walking according to the flesh will always, always lead to destruction in our relationships. The very opposite. Always lead. I'll give you an example. What's the first one in that list? Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? Well, a biblical standard of sexual immorality is this. God created sex for a man and a woman in the context of a marriage relationship. Anything outside of a man and woman in a committed marriage relationship, anybody having sex outside of that would be considered sexual immorality. It's not too hard to figure out. Many of you would sit in my office and argue to your blue in the face that there's nothing wrong with having sex outside of that description, a man and a woman in the context of marriage. But let me ask you a question. If you've engaged in sex outside of marriage, are you ready? Has it made your life better? Or has it made your life more complicated? Well, if you're honest, you would say, oh, more complicated. Because if you're not married, you live with all the stress, the emotions of having sex without the commitment. If you are married and you're having an affair, you live with the stress of being found out. You just the fact you're knowing you're being disobedient. It always causes more stress. It doesn't make life better. How about fits of rage? Have you ever had a good old fit of rage? That make your life better? <laughs> make your life more complicated. Have a problem with getting drunk? Be honest. Has that ever made your life better? Or does it make your life more complicated, right? And it's because, understand, our sinful nature always leads to the destruction of life as God designed it. That's Paul's point here. 
And then he shifts gears and says, let me paint a picture of you what it's going to look like if you quit walking according to the flesh and you start walking according to the Spirit. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is. Not the fruit of your discipline. Some of you think I can do it because I'm disciplined. Not the fruit of your training. Not the fruit of your Bible knowledge. Not the fruit of your willpower. It's not the fruit of your good marriage or your vast education. The source of this fruit is the Spirit of God. That means simply this. When we learn to walk in the Spirit... As God begins to produce kindness, our circumstances can't steal our kindness. Our circumstances, regardless of what's going on, cannot take away our compassion in action. Because, see, our kindness doesn't have its roots in our circumstances. The source of this fruit is the Spirit of God. And that's why it would be a waste for all of us this week and a waste of our time to walk out of here and say, you know, from here on out, I've made a decision. I am going to be a kinder, gentler person. I'm telling you, we can't produce kindness. Because when we do, it's rooted, it's dependent on our circumstances. That means that whatever or whoever controls our circumstances controls our compassion in action. And that's not the kind of kindness that God is interested in. He wants a kindness that's rooted in him. Because when it's sourced in God, nothing can mess with it. And that's why God offers a completely different approach in verse 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. By the way, this this list right there, look at it, explains why Jesus came. He didn't come just to give his life for us. Jesus came to this earth to give his life to us. Big difference. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to prompt us and empower us, we talked about that last week. This is the kind of character in these verses that he wants to produce in us. And at the end of the day, he wants us to become men and women who are known for our kindness, our compassion for one another. And he tells us how that happens in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You know what that says? It means we're no longer, as Christians, we are no longer slaves. Don't you love it when we sing that song? We are no longer slaves to our past. We are no longer slaves to our sin. And it's because God took us on as a project and he made us inwardly good through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, in our lives. And so Paul concludes, since that's the case, since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's be sensitive to his promptings. Let's allow him to empower us to be the people we cannot be so that we can do the things on our own we could not do. Do you know what our part is? It's not to promise God that uh, we're going to try to be good and kind people. It's not to get up tomorrow and say, today, I am not going to be a bad person. Mm -mm. Our part as Christians is to simply learn to walk according to the Spirit. You know what that tells me? It tells me that if you want to commit to something as a Christian, commit yourself to the process of learning to walk according to the Spirit. It's not about your discipline. A lot of Christians get really excited about their discipline. It's not about your discipline. It's about your dependency. It's not about how committed you are. It's about his empowerment. It's not about what you can do. It's about what he can do through you. And I'm going to tell you something, he can't wait to get started. But you've got to get to the point, even as a Christian, where you're ready to take the controls, your hands off the controls of your life 
and say, I can't do this. I can't stop this. I can't break this habit on my own. I can't be kind. I can't find peace. I can't be patient. So Spirit, you do it through me. You do it through me. Father, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for the practicality of your word. Father, we live, in a, we live in a dark world. We need people who are excellent in character. Give us just one, give us just one presidential candidate who is excellent in character, and we would be excited. But Father, we need excellence in character. And when we get there, kindness, compassion, and action will flow out of us, not because of our goodness, but because of you at work in us and through us. That's where you want to take us. Help us get there. In your name we pray. Amen.